You know, there are days that are stranger than others, and today is a strange day. But we're going to see what God has for us this morning. Honestly, I, I have no idea. <laughs> I really don't. You know, we're going to have fun. I can tell you that. Fun. We're going to have lots of fun. <laughs> it's going to be great. Now, I'm telling you, the week, the week that I've had this week, um, and I'm not complaining about my week, but, but we had the mission team here all week, and we uh, are so grateful for them, again, for, the, you know, for what they've done. If you go back in that room, and if you saw that room before, and you knew what it looked like, and even like a few years ago, before we tore it all up, it's, uh, now there's, there's two bathrooms. They're not fully equipped. You can't use them yet. But the rooms are there, and there was nothing there before. And so in, in six short days, the work that they did, it was, it was incredible. And we're grateful and thankful for them. And with that, as you know, I'm in seminary. I'm going to Tenet Seminary, which if you're not familiar with that, it's a seminary that was started by the Calvary Family of Churches just a few years ago. And uh, yesterday, they had their first graduation ever. And I was there. And you may not know this, but I was originally part of that first group that were going to go through Tenet. And so I got to see five of my dear friends graduate. Now, I was unable to continue in that cohort only because um, time commitments <laughs> and going to seminary full time while you're trying to minister and do pastoral work and help Matt for full-time, it was impossible for me anyway. And so I went part-time. But I got to tell you, it was incredible to watch these five men who have poured themselves into the scriptures for two and a half years, learning everything that they can about Jesus, not for their own glory, but so that they could teach the Word of God rightly. So that they could bring their congregations and the people that they come in contact with the Word of God as truth, as written in its original language, as well as in our English translations, to people like you. And I am just honored to be a part of a seminary that, that teaches the Word and loves the Word as much as Tenet does. So with that... I've been writing papers and stuff to try and catch up. I'm a little behind. <laughs> That's why I didn't graduate. <laughs> but, but I've been writing a paper on what, what is known as the Ordo Salutis, which is the order of salvation. When you go to seminary and you pay a lot of money to go to seminary, which tenets, not that expensive, just to give them another, you know, push. That, but you pay money to go to seminary. They teach you how to speak in languages that are dead that nobody speaks in. So you learn, you learn how to speak some things in Latin that nobody ever, you know, who cares if it's the order of salutis or the ordo salutis. It's the order of salvation. But I paid a lot of money to be able to say it in Latin. So I did. There you go. But anyway, with that, trying to figure out, you know, just there's things that you learn and you know, Right? You learn and you know what salvation is. I wouldn't be here in this pulpit ever if I didn't know what it took and what, this, what, what it meant to be saved. 
But when you, when you dive into God's word, as deep as seminary takes you, and I used to be a guy when I started out in my 30s thinking, well, you know, I can learn it on my own. I don't need to go to school. I can do this thing, right? And I did. Not well, but I did. And when I started going to seminary many years ago, um, I learned rather rapidly how important education really is and how deep God's word is and how we could never know all of it. It's impossible. We just can't. We can't, nor would we really want to. Because there is a joy in the process of learning. And learning how God works in salvation. How it's his plan. And how he lays it out. And what little part we really play in it ourselves is incredible. And today we're going to learn some of that as we look at uh, our first dive into Galatians chapter 5. And just so you know, we are in Galatians chapter 5, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6. And uh, we're going to be starting to make a bit of a transition away from some of the things that we talked about for the last several months as far as circumcision. Although circumcision is prominent in this particular passage and probably the next one as well. But once we get through the next two messages, we should make a turn. And so some of these things, it seems like that we've been talking about forever, we get to talk about some other things. But I just want you to know, this is, this is what some commentators say, especially in verse 1 of chapter 5, is the pinnacle verse of Galatians. You'll know why when we read it, if you haven't read it for a while. But if Matt were here, he would agree that teaching through Galatians has been really difficult. It's been really difficult. But it's also been unbelievably great because what Paul is saying to the Galatians is, is, are things that, that we need to hear. It's not always things we want to hear, but it's things that we need to hear. And as we head into chapter 5, it's going to be really exciting to see where God takes us. And I'm excited to do that as we start this morning. Our message this morning is going to have three main points. We're going to see that how to stand firm in the freedom that Christ gives us. And then our second point is going to be the consequences of what unbelief is. That's the tough part. And the third one is the joy of living in our belief. So let's, let's bow our heads in prayer as we get started this morning. And just ask for God's grace upon our time. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, God, again for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your joy. And Lord, I, I pray for Matt now as he is getting ready to preach um, in Monte Vista. I pray, God, that you give him strength and courage as well. I pray, God, that through our messages this morning that people's hearts will be changed. They'll see you more. They'll know you more. They'll love you more. Father God, I just pray that you are glorified today. In your name we pray. Amen. So if you have your Bibles and you have them open to Galatians chapter 5, we'll start in verse 1 and we'll read through verse 6. Verse 1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. 
I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So we hear that and you go, gosh, that's, that's a pretty tough passage. It is, but it's also really, really great. It's, we're going to have fun, I'm telling you. Trust me. Even in the hard parts, we're going to have fun. So when we start out, and the first point that I want to make is, is that we need to stand firm in the freedom that Christ has given us. Again, this verse is what's been called the pinnacle of Galatians. So let's read it again. For freedom... Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, one of the things that you learn when you go to seminary, you go to Bible college, and you learn how to study the Word, and you learn what's known as the, uh, exegesis, which you want to learn exegesis, just to give you a little idea of things. We want to learn exegesis and not eisegesis, because exegesis is taking what the Word says and taking from the Word. Eisegesis is taking what's in here and putting it into the Word. That's bad. That's what gets us into trouble. So when you learn how to do exegesis, you learn that that Paul has a way of writing a sentence. And the way he writes a sentence is that he uses an indicative or a fact followed by an imperative, which is the response, the action. So Meaning that what God has done first, then we are told what we need to do in response. The fact that God's work followed by the call to action of his people. And everything that we do is based on what God has already done. He gives us what we need to accomplish what he's called us to do. And Paul does that here. And we see that. You can read that. For freedom Christ has set us free. Well, we know that Christ is the one who set us free, and Paul is pointing that out. And then he gives us two commands that we're to follow through on. But I want to take some time and just talk about what he means by freedom. Because sometimes freedom, we get that wrong. And it's important for us to understand when Paul talks about freedom in this sense, what does that mean? The first thing that we should understand is that we are free to rejoice in our new life in Christ. You are free from the obligations of the law, the law of Moses, the law of works. Nothing can be added or done to make you more saved or to have more of God's favor or make you more of an adopted child of His. You are free to live in Christ as a child of the King. That is really good news. I mean, honestly, we could stop there and go home and, and think really great of ourselves, right? Unfortunately, there's more. But there are forces out there that want to tell us, you must do this, that you must do that. You must read your Bible daily. You must have a daily quiet time. You must not eat meat on Friday. You must get baptized. You must speak in tongues. You must prophesy You must bark like a dog in order to prove that you are saved and filled with the Holy Spirit. 
The last one you might laugh at, but I've actually heard that before. It's crazy. People, the things that they will say. Now, most of those, of course, reading our Bible and praying and doing those things, those are good things, right? Those are things that we do. Those are things that are outpourings of our salvation. But we don't do them to gain our salvation. That's an important distinction, okay? They are not salvific in nature, okay? So the equation, I didn't tell you there's going to be math, but there's math involved here. The equation for salvation, get that, the equation for salvation. They also teach you that in seminary and how to make cute little phrases that rhyme. The equation for salvation is Jesus plus nothing equals saved, equals being Christ, a child of the King of Kings. The wrong equation, and you'll get an F on your paper, is Jesus plus anything else, that equals destruction and condemnation. Do you understand what I'm saying there? We've been talking about this a lot. Jesus plus nothing. Why is that? Because Jesus is sufficient. We don't need anything else. It is God's grace alone and Christ alone by faith alone. And faith comes from God. You do not have it if He doesn't give it to you. Our sin prevents us from making any move toward the Lord Jesus without the intervention of God. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Faith comes from the Lord. It is His gift to you. It is not generated by anything that you do, by any person. So, now we are free to live without shame or guilt from our past. Yes, we know that there are consequences to some of our actions that happen in this world. But we are free to live as new creations in Him. Freedom to proclaim the good news of Christ among the nations, among the, your family members, friends, co-workers, strangers on the street. Freedom to be honest and tell others about what Christ has done and how you can be saved from your past and what He is doing in your present and the hope that you have for the future. There is freedom to love your neighbor, to love the Lord, to endure hardship with patience and prayer. Freedom to give generously of your time, your talents and treasure. Freedom to be kind. Freedom to be faithful. Freedom to be gentle. To have self-control and to be thankful in all circumstances. Freedom to find joy and peace in this life and in suffering. But here's what there is not freedom to do. There is not freedom to do as you please and continue in your sin. A truly transformed life in Christ will grieve when we sin and will seek forgiveness in the Lord. When we give our lives to Jesus, we are committing to live 
for him. I know that sometimes people have, and this is one of the things that's happened this week, is that I talked to someone who told me that they didn't believe in God. They didn't love God. They never did. A person that I had once thought I led to Jesus. And I have to tell you, it broke my heart. A transformed life is a life that lives for Jesus. We are committing to live for him. We are not committing. When we come to Jesus, we are not committing, expecting God to do magic for us. To fix everything right away. Or to just escape hell. When we come to Jesus, we are coming to Jesus. And we are accepting Him as our Savior. We are committing ourselves to Him. And I know that that might be difficult for us to understand, especially as new Christians. But I want us to understand that when we, when we come to Christ, when, when we make that commitment to come to Him, we are coming to Him alone. Now, not going to hell is part of it, okay? Expecting him to help us through our trials and our suffering is part of it. But Jesus alone is our Savior and our Lord. That we must understand. And I have to admit to you that I have been a little lax on that when I have spoken with people and led them to the Lord. And one of the things that God smacked me over the face with, with the two-by-four this week, was that very thing. He told me that, no, Scott, they need to know that they are coming to me. I am their Savior and Lord. I am the one who went to the cross. I am the one who gave you freedom to live and took you from the yoke of slavery, of works, and the law. We are free to speak and defend the gospel wherever we find ourselves. We are no longer under the bondage of the slavery of our own works and false teaching that we try to, that others try to put on us. We are liberated and free in Christ alone. Again, if you've accepted and received Jesus as your Savior, it is Jesus plus nothing. That is God's word. Theologian Timothy George says this, we will not go astray if we remember that for Paul, Christian liberty was always grounded on the believer's relationship with Jesus Christ on the one hand and with the community of faith on the other. Outside of Jesus Christ, human existence is characterized as bondage. Bondage to the law, bondage to the evil elements dominating the world, bondage to sin, the flesh, and the devil. God sent his son into the world to shatter the dominion of these slaveholders. Now God has sent his spirit into the hearts of believers to awaken them to new life and liberation in Christ. Do you see what Christ has done? He has broken the bonds of slavery, of our sin, of everything for freedom that can only be found in him. 
2 Corinthians 3.17 says, Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. You may have heard that or sung that before. This freedom means to be possessors of liberty. Don't give it up. Don't trade it in for the first shiny thing that comes along. Don't be Esau and trade your birthright for a bowl of stew. We live in the Spirit and free from guilt and shame to do productive kingdom work wherever God places you. We have a bad idea sometimes in the Christian world of what work is and what is it. We are called to be Christian missionaries in His light wherever we're at, no matter what our task is. It doesn't matter what your job is. God has given you that job. He's given you that place. And those people around you are your people. They are your people that he has put you, for, uh, put you in in order to share his good news with them. Now we have to understand that we're not responsible for them and their salvation. We are, we are free from that. But we are responsible for obedience, and that is taking the good news to them whenever the opportunity arises. I'm not saying that you have to go into the lunchroom and get on a soapbox and start preaching every day. No, but we can infiltrate areas, and we can be there as God's light in the darkness. We were talking about this this morning in Sunday school. The enemy is really great at infiltration. He finds his way into all different places. Schools are a very big place right now that we see them. They get into politics. He goes into every single place, and he does a great job of getting in there and quietly doing his work, and then, bam. We have three laws that were signed in Colorado that make us the destination for abortion. And we have our leader standing on the floor after they sign the bill, rejoicing. That sickens my heart. We should be the ones who are in there infiltrating and bringing the light into the darkness. That's what we have freedom to do. It's freedom that's difficult. But it's not, it's, it's, it's worthwhile things that we do. So the second thing in this particular point I want to say is, what is Christ's gift? What is the gift that he's given us? It's freedom from the wrath of God. Freedom from the payment that must be paid for, for our sin. We are free because Christ is the one who took our payment from us and he placed it on himself. He alone is the spotless lamb. He is the propitiation for our transgressions. He is the way, the truth, and the life. His gift to us is what Don spoke about in Romans 8, 1 through 4. And let's read that again. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, could not do. 
by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. If you are in Christ, if you've truly given your life to him, if you've truly surrendered to his authority over your life, there is no condemnation for you. Your salvation is secure. Heaven awaits your coming. You are free from trying to gain God's favor. You already have it. Live freely for Him. The law cannot accomplish what Christ accomplished on the cross. The third thing is how to receive this gift. How to receive this freedom. Well, we receive it by faith. Which, as we talked about, is a gift given to us by the Lord. We do not have any faith until He gives it to us. As we looked at in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is the gift of God, not of your own doing. God is the one who provided His Son. God is the one who provides our faith. God is the one who elected us for salvation in the first place. God is the one who calls our name and draws us to Him. God is the one who redeems us. God is the one who justifies us. God is the one who sanctifies us. Who transforms us into the image of Jesus. It is not based on anything that we do. We must receive His gift of grace by the faith that He provides us. His gift of salvation by receiving Jesus as Savior and Lord. In Acts 4.12, Peter says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We must receive Jesus. That's it. That means giving Him our lives. Again, I, if you're new to this, I don't expect you to understand all of it right now. But understand that Christ is the Messiah. He is our Savior. He is the only way to get saved. Some of us who've been Christians for a while still see this as a mystery at times. We don't totally understand it. But the joy is learning more and more about it as we go forth. So how do we do this? Well, first, admit you're a sinner. Admit you need a Savior to save you from God's wrath and punishment from your sins. The Bible tells us that all of us are sinners. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. This means to repent. Well, I know that's a bit of a churchy word and sometimes a scary word. What it really just means is to turn from your life of sin, which leads to death and hell, and turning around into our Savior's loving arms, into Jesus' loving arms, turning to Him for life instead of the direction you're headed, which is death. He died for you. Put your trust and your faith in Him and Him alone. And if you're interested this morning to do that, let's do that. We'll do that today. I promise you, if you come to me after service and say you want 
to accept Christ as Lord and Savior, I will help you. Dennis can help you. Many of us can help you. Don't leave. We will help you. And now as we turn from this section, this, this first verse, which we took a long time to go through, we're going to be turning now from what's known as the indicative to the imperative. What do we do? Well, we're still in the same verse. Sorry. My mistake. Missed my notes there. We're in the second half of the first verse. The first verse is really important. We've got to get it. So what do we do with this? What is, what is God calling us to do out of this? He tells us to stand firm. Have you ever had a new puppy and tried teaching the command to stay? Yeah, it takes practice and many failures and sometimes many treats before the puppy will stay and wait for the next command to come before moving. And I've had dogs that never got that. And people are the same way. Paul talks about standing firm in many of his letters. So here he's telling the Galatians to stand firm. Some of us, first sign of trouble, we move. We don't stand firm. We're not waiting for the next command. This verse might be familiar to some of us. 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Be watchful. Stand firm in the truth. Act like men. Be strong. We are to stand firm in the faith the Lord has gifted us with and to act like men, meaning that we are to act like Jesus, the ultimate man, and be strong. Strong in Christ. Strong in our faith in Him and His promises. Paul was telling them to hold firm to the true gospel, to not get moved off the mark to a different gospel that includes circumcision and following the law. He tells us to enjoy your freedom. And then the second thing he says is do not submit to slavery. And it literally means do not let yourself get ensnared or entangled in slavery to the law. The law is a curse, and it points to condemnation. It enlightens us to sin. Remember back in Galatians 3.13, Paul writes that Jesus became a curse for us so we don't have to face the wrath of his Father. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. <coughs> Christ became the curse. He hung on the tree. By his stripes, we are healed. We are set free from our slaveholder, our sin, and his enemy. Paul now, well, the enemy would be the devil. Sorry, that word wasn't in my notes. I added it. I always do that, and it gets me in trouble. Paul now transitions back to circumcision, which we have discussed many times over the last several months. The issue of circumcision was a big issue for the, for the Christian faith back then. Maybe not as much now. But the question of do you need to become a Jew first before becoming a Christian was a big enough question that it's recorded in Acts 15, 1-35, the Jerusalem Council where the apostles and the leaders of the church at the time gathered to talk about this. They gathered together to determine whether or not someone had to be a Jew first before they became a Christian. 
Do they need to be circumcised? Are they required to follow the law? And even in our letter in Galatians, the idea did Paul write this letter before the Jerusalem Council or shortly after is a question that's up for debate. As I have studied Galatians, my viewpoint is that Paul wrote to the Galatians first, before the council happened. And I think, based on my study, that this shows that Paul was dealing with this issue, which helped lead to the council. The council, after much prayer and discussion, decided no, a person did not have to become circumcised and follow the law to become a Christian. Christ is enough. He's enough. Paul addresses the, the consequences of refusing to let go of, of the law in verses 2 through 4. And this is the hard part. I mean, I, maybe that was the hard part, but this is the harder part. The second point is that following the law equals severed from Christ. That, that is a tough message. Starting in verse 2, Paul says, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Those are tough words. There's four consequences if you accept circumcision in the law and reject the freedom that Christ provides in him alone. Some of these points, they share similar themes, but, but I want to break them out so that we can understand truly what the consequences of this really is. And Paul is really doing a summary of everything that he's taught us through the first four chapters of Galatians. But now, there are consequences, and he's bringing them out. He's showing us what really happens if you continue down this path, as he tells the Galatians. We have to understand that when Paul is talking about circumcision here in these verses, he's using that in the past tense. I mean, he's using it in the present tense. In the past tense, he can't stop what's already happened. He can't stop what the knife already did. But he can stop the cutting going forward. And that's as graphic as I'm going to get on circumcision. And I got that from a commentator, just to give him credit. He says, let's end the pain now. And the first thing of the first one of the four is this. That Christ will be of no value to you. He says this in verse 2. If you say that you give your life to Jesus alone and now want to add the act of circumcision to the equation as we talked about earlier, you are rendering Jesus' death and resurrection as insufficient for your salvation. You might remember this verse earlier if you've been around us when going through Galatians when Paul addresses this in, in chapter 2, verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Which is the most horrific thing that could possibly ever happen. 
that Jesus, through all the torture and, and blood and everything that he went through for us, his death on the cross would be for no purpose. You are saying that Christ has no value to you. Now let me ask you, are you willing to stand before Christ and explain that to him? No, I hope not. Christ is enough. Christ is all. Christ plus nothing equals salvation. The second thing Paul points out is that, if, that you're obligated to keep the whole law. In verse 3, the false teaching Judaizers were telling the Galatians that, hey, you know, I'm not saying you have to keep the whole law. But you've got to keep the circumcision part and you've got to follow the feasts. You've got to do that. But what Paul is saying is this. Because he saw, he saw the Judaizers as pickers and choosers. Ear ticklers. Just telling them what they wanted to hear. But Paul was an expert in the law because he was a Pharisee. He was a teacher. He knew the law better than anybody. And he knew that you're either fully in are fully out. You cannot pick and choose. This is like the false teachers today who say that they don't believe the Bible is God's holy word. We don't believe in all of it, they say. We believe in the love parts, but we don't believe in the wrath parts. We don't believe in hell, but we believe in heaven. We don't believe in sin, but we believe in grace. Well, let me tell you, friends, you can't have it both ways. You either believe all of it, or you believe none of it. I don't think either you or I have the authority or the knowledge or the ability from the author of our faith to tell him what parts are true and which parts aren't. Unless you're an incredibly arrogant person upon which I do not want to be around you when you go to heaven and get judged by him. Because you will be humbled in a heartbeat, and then you'll be dead. You'll be cast into the lake of fire forever. I pity you. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, Paul writes, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture is God-breathed, all of it, so we are equipped for every good work. We are complete by God's word. He tells us everything we need to know about him, enough to be saved, enough to understand who he is. So it is with the law. It's either all of it, or it's none of it. But it's never not just part of it. So where do you put your faith? Do you put it in your ability to keep the whole law or in Christ's redeeming work on the cross? I know where I put my faith, and it's not in myself. I know myself way too well. And here's the thing. As well as I know me, God knows me better. And he knows I can't do it. So he sent his son so that I could be with him and put my faith in him. The third one, they get worse. They just get worse, I'm telling you. This one's not really funny, but I, 
I have to smile because otherwise it just really kills you inside. You are severed from Christ. Verse 4. And again, these next two are kind of similar. But I want to break them out so you can see really what this picture is that Paul is painting. It's a pretty dark and stormy picture. And now he's adding the lightning and the thunder and these next two consequences. Much like the one where Christ is of no value, Paul is saying in even stronger language that you are cut off from Jesus. And the verb for severed is in the past tense. It has already happened for those who want to be justified by the law and not by Christ. If you want to be justified by your own works, it literally means to be done away with, to cease. The Galatians who continue in this way, you have chosen your path, Paul is saying. And Christ is of no value to you, so you have ceased contact with him. And your relationship with him is done away with by your own choice. This is not a place I would want to find myself in the day of judgment, I can tell you that. But he's talking now about the folks who have never really come to a saving faith in Jesus. They've always trusted themselves over Christ. John, or Jesus said in John 3.36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath that Christ, has, the Christ took upon himself for those who would believe in him alone for salvation will fall on the unbelieving sinner who denies Jesus. And the fourth, the fourth consequence, you have fallen away from grace. <clears throat> Similar to point three, you will fall away from grace is again in the past tense. Paul writes back in Galatians 1, 6, and 7, he says, I am astonished to the Galatians. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. It is astonishing to see people who say they believe in Jesus and then say they don't. Or they decide that I want to do more. That my salvation is not in Him alone. I, I must earn more of His favor. I must continue climbing up that mountain. I must continuing to dig into that rock until I find what I'm looking for. And all you're going to have are bloody fingers you'll never be able to dig in that rock. Christ did it for you. We are to rest in our freedom in Him and Him alone. And as Paul said in Galatians 4.9, but now you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of this world? Whose slaves you want to be once more? Why? Why would you ever want to go back when you have freedom in Christ? John Stott writes this. He says, you cannot have it both ways. 
it is impossible to receive Christ, thereby acknowledging that you cannot save yourself, and then receive circumcision, thereby claiming you can. You cannot add circumcision, or anything else for that matter, to Christ as necessary to salvation, because Christ is sufficient for salvation in himself. If you add anything to Christ, you lose Christ. Salvation is in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. Again, this is important that Paul is not talking about losing your salvation. When Paul is saying this, he is talking about people who did not make Christ their Savior to begin with. They did not see Him as sufficient enough for them to believe in. They continually think that they are good enough to earn God's favor on their own. Good luck. It can't happen. I believe we've made that known ever since we started talking through Galatians and even before that. You will never hear us say that your works will save you because the Bible doesn't say that. God's Word says Christ alone is sufficient for our salvation. and We must believe that. All aspects of our salvation come from the Lord. Nothing from us. This you must understand. But here's the good news. And there is good news. There is another way. A better way. There is a way to freedom and away from condemnation and the yoke of slavery. And this is found in our third point, walking through faith and love, which is found in Galatians 5, 5-6, the last two verses. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. In verse 5, Paul says that through the Spirit, by faith alone, we eagerly await the hope of righteousness. Now Paul is speaking to those who have now placed their faith in Christ Jesus alone, who have received him as their Savior. Those who have obtained their freedom from trying to earn their way to heaven and gain God's favor. Those of us who now eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. And this is in the present tense. Because those in Christ are always eagerly awaiting the hope that is found only in Christ. It is an expectation we have every minute of every day of joy in Him. Much like a young child on Christmas morning when they wake up and know that something is under the tree for them. But the gift that we place our hope in and eagerly anticipate will not break in five minutes. It will never perish. It is eternal. And no one can take it away. To live in glory with Christ in heaven to be in the physical presence of God. And because we place our faith in Jesus, we know 
That day is coming. And there is no doubt. Unlike those who put their faith and trust in Him, put their faith and trust in themselves and their works, they never know whether or not they've done enough to win God's favor. Of course, we know that if we are placing our faith in our own works, that they'll never find God's favor. And they'll be separated and cut off from Christ. They fall from grace. And as Paul says in verse 6, in Christ no works count for anything. Christ came and fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the ceremonial law of sacrifices and works. He came and took the wrath of his Father for our sins. Jesus came to bring light into the darkness, to provide hope where there wasn't any hope. He came to bring life instead of death. He came to bring forgiveness instead of condemnation. He came to bring freedom, not a bitter yoke of slavery. Psalm 4.8. Actually, this is the verse of the day if you have the Version Bible app and it came up and it's coincidental. <laughs> but Psalm 4.8 says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Isn't that beautiful? Where would you rather live? In that? Or wondering whether or not you've done enough only to find out you never could? Faith alone in Christ and love counts for everything. Everything. The word for love here is agape. It is a love that, that is a deep affection, full of benevolence. It is a love that is often described as God's love. The kind of love that drove Jesus to the cross for his Father and for us. It is a love reserved for those who have a relationship with Jesus, not those who turn their back on him. The freedom that Jesus provided for us does not mean freedom to do as we want. It is a freedom to work in God's will for the sake of the kingdom willingly and without grumbling. It is to be done in love for our Savior, our God, in the power of the Holy Spirit. There is work for us to do while we are here on this earth. We are to bring the good news to the sick and the poor, to the hopeless and the addicted, to the rich and the lost, to those whom God puts in our path. For us here in La Junta, we have our city here, our town of La Junta to reach. We have Fort Lyon, we have Los Animas, and we have Monta Vista. We have Jessica Evans, who is now in France. She left Tuesday and arrived in France on Wednesday and is now in country bringing the good news to Muslim refugees. Ian and Haley are in South Asia doing the same thing. The tentacles of this body of Christ are worldwide. God has given us a great reach. God has given us a great task. God is using this church to bring His hope to the nations. That should be an encouragement to all of us. And we should be excited to do that work. 
The ultimate love that we can provide for a person is to show them Jesus. To tell them to stop trying to earn God's favor. To stop wondering whether you are saved. And to show them that through Christ alone, that is the way to true freedom and forgiveness. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and we are grateful for your word. As encouraging and as difficult as it can be sometimes, Lord, we love all of it. Because we know through all of it we become complete. Lord, I pray that none of us here today who have placed our faith and trust in you alone would ever want to put on the yoke of slavery ever again. That we would look into our life and see what are the things that we are trying to do that are trying to earn your favor. I pray, God, that these things that we do, these good things that we do for you, that you have called us to do, that we do out of freedom to do them and not by trying to earn anything from you because we can't earn anything from you that we already have. I pray, Father, that the good works that we do would be done out of joy, not obligation. That we would do them, Lord, with a, with a spirit of happiness and thankfulness that you chose us to do these works. Father God, then we would do them until we die and are with you. That we would not stop working for you, but do it with a heart of rejoicing, not out of slavery. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for what you have done for us. By going to the cross, by shedding your blood, by dying, and then being raised again on the third day. And now, as you ascended and are sitting at the right hand of the Father, as we await your glorious return, thank you, Jesus, for your gospel message, your saving hope, alone found in you by the faith your Father has given us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.